Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Most of us would love to have a perfect memory, but the truth is we often fall far short of this aspiration. After all, who hasn't forgotten someone's name right after you were introduced or failed to remember where you left your car in the parking lot? Our memories are rarely as reliable as we would like them to be. And more so, our memories, even some of our most formative memories, can alter over time. Each time we return to a memory, it can change ever so slightly until the story in our minds, while it may reflect a personal truth, is suddenly far from the facts of the lived reality. Memory is ephemeral and ever-shifting, and yet it's foundational to the ways we understand our worlds and ourselves. So today, I'm really excited that we're going to be exploring these phenomena with two outstanding guests. And of course, along the way, we'll also be discussing and exploring the influence of patriarchy as well. Later in the episode, we'll hear a harrowing story of hazy memories and toxic paternal fury as an anonymous contributor entrusts us with her recollections of patriarchy in her childhood home. But first, we're going to be joined by essayist and educator Emily Prado, who speaks to us openly about the intersections of patriarchy and white supremacy. She will also read a personal essay from her collection of coming-of-age stories, Funeral for Flaca. In this particular essay, Emily writes gracefully of her father, her family structure, of memory, and of doubt, and we're so grateful to have her with us today. Emily Giselle Prado is a writer, a DJ, and an educator living in Portland, Oregon, with roots in the San Francisco Bay Area and Michoacan, Mexico. As an award-winning multimedia journalist, Emily spent half a decade independently reporting on a wide range of topics, most often centered on amplifying the voices and experiences of people from historically marginalized communities. Her writing and photographs have been published widely, appearing in more than 30 publications. She moonlights as DJ Mammy Miami with Noche Libre, the Latinx DJ collective that she co-founded in 2017. Welcome, Emily. listeners. This is Emily Prado. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the author of Funeral for Flaca, which came out in July 2021 with Future Tense Books. Patriarchy is a huge topic that has a lot of different facets that we could look into, but one of the things that I think about patriarchy is kind of like white supremacy in that it can infiltrate many aspects of our lives. And so being aware of what structures are in play, what power dynamics are in play in the way that we not only sort of operate um, as a society, but on an interpersonal relationship is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And having been an intern at Bitch Media and learning about patriarchy through a very specific sort of feminist lens, what I think about now more in life actually is about white supremacy. I think about white supremacy informing how I see patriarchy. And I guess what I'm more concerned and focused on a fight against white supremacy, which I think is what feeds things like patriarchy. And not to say that 
patriarchy isn't important in in examining it, but I think that it is also a byproduct of what I see as the bigger influence, which is white supremacy and a culture that creates class systems uh, and systems that oppress people of different genders and different religions. And so it, it feels even bigger than just patriarchy of what I think is the root of a lot of evil in this world. <laughs> I'll be reading the essay titled Por qué me haces llorar? And before I begin, just wanted to give a little bit of context about the collection. It is a coming-of-age memoir and essays that spans my life from when I'm about five years old to when I'm 29 years old. And each of the essays is titled after a different song. Sometimes the song appears in the essay, and other times it's meant to be a soundtrack, if you will, to accompany the themes in the essays, or could be a song that I actually heard growing up at that time. And so I'm really excited to read this particular essay because it is a newer essay of the collection that I wrote, and is a bit about my relationship to memory, to family, and to what it's like to attempt to write, honestly, a memoir with a shaky sense of memory. And so I think that some of the themes in here might be relatable to folks, whether or not they have struggled to uncover family secrets of their own. But regardless, I'm really excited to share it with folks today. And if you have a copy of Funeral for Fleca, this is essay number nine, and you can read along. My puppy's family is old school. The adults stand in clusters at parties, and when we younger familia arrive, we must walk from huddled group to huddled group and interrupt them with greetings. The senoras get a small handshake or hug and a fake kiss, our cheeks touch, turned, and we pucker at the air in unison. The senoras get a handshake and sometimes a fake kiss too if you know how they're related to you. Parties happen several times a year. Easter, bautizos, first communions, birthdays, deaths. The parties are big. No fewer than 50 guests in attendance with linen-covered table rentals, buffet, or taquero, mariachi, and or a DJ, and plenty of tequila, vino, y cerveza. How many people successfully pull off the payaso de rodeo line dance determines exactly how cool a party is. If it takes us 22 minutes to enter a party, it takes at least two times longer to leave when we make the rounds again because more adults have inevitably arrived and the alcohol makes way for the truer, blunter, lengthier things they want to get off their minds, like why don't we come around more often or if we know our puppy loves us. My sister and I have learned that if we don't follow the rules, somebody will tell somebody and then somebody else will tell our dad, even if he isn't there and everyone will know we are disrespectful. Growing up, I often felt that our mere presence as bastard children as the first family was a disrespect, or at least another reason to be more scrutinized. It was like we were seen as washed-up child stars doomed for misery and worse, poverty. My puppy believes elders deserve our undying respect, he believes there are rules for how we must behave, and I have been taught to follow these. No andas con esas caras, he'd say to me when so often my face would betray my attempts at obedience. Your face is going to get stuck like that, my mom would sometimes chime in. 
Even though my papi is the one who was born in Redwood City and my mommy was born in Apatzingan, he is the more Mexican one having been raised there. My mommy would agree. Other rules I have learned. Don't talk back. Asking questions is talking back. Don't cry. That's talking back. Say please and thank you. Repeat these with a smile if somebody else decides you sound insincere, just for parties with a full body commitment. You will be judged by the smoothness of your hair to the colored polish of your toenails to the slimness of your waistline and everything in between. Men are heads of the house and can do as they please. Our women aren't afraid to physically fight even at family parties and only cry when you can blame the tequila or corridos. There is a years-long stretch of time when my mother and father speak every week. My mommy, mid-dishwashing, would rinse herself of suds, turn off the kitchen sink, then wipe her hands with a towel as quickly as she could to make sure that she'd pick up our home phone by the second or third ring. Neck cranked to one side, cradling the receiver. She'd finish drying her hands with her jeans and would make the short walk down the hall to the bedroom they once shared. She'd lay on her back over the made bed, pick up the beige ringlet corded phone from the nightstand, and hang up the wireless one. Then they'd talk. Sometimes she'd twirl her soft hair or the curled cord or pick out lint from her belly button. They'd do this for a long time. She says they'd talk about us, her kids. She'd tell him about what we were up to, what we needed, and probably how much money he should send. I can't imagine there'd be hours of conversation to be had about their three babies, but somehow there was. I don't remember if they'd say they loved each other at the end or silently in their heads, but I think this could be a possibility. I wonder if my mommy was like a therapist, taking in all the ways he was trying to work through his being f***ed up, or perhaps helping him see the ways he still was, or the ways he'd grown, or if this was just another space for my mommy to keep up the hope that he could be changed, or really want change. My mommy believes people can change. My mommy believes and feels in her own bones how life is not just, how good people can get hurt just as easily as the bad. How the ones who puff up their chests to pretend they are all edges are usually the most sad and soft. No one is, is innocent in her eyes, and everyone hurts and has been hurt in their own ways. She holds so much love for others, but not very often for herself in the same way. I think I have learned these same lessons from her. My parents actually have a great relationship. I'd tell the nosy parents of friends or teammates who'd inquire about the structure of my fragmented family. Wow, you are so lucky, they'd all say. And then, my parents have a great relationship was only true for half a decade. As the sad-ass saying goes, I suppose all good things must come to an end. My sister's rift with our stepmother when Erica was 17 or 18 was the tidal wave that damaged everything around it. My mommy and papi's cordial relationship was swallowed, and my 10-year-old Emily's song lyric comparisons were respond. I still don't know the details of their riff in full, but I know I am tired of picking at scabs. I think all parties involved would tell a different side of their story. 
I think all versions could be summarized with broken trust and stupidity and a silver ring may be stolen by my sister and our cousin from Gummy and a maybe joke gone wrong. And most of all, nobody on any side wanting to back down. I still think about sides now, how we have each other's back until we don't, and how blood always comes first, but how sometimes there are exceptions when your blood flows through so many veins. I think everyone is guilty. I think we all need therapy. I know I am tired of asking what went wrong. Mommy and Papi go most of four years without talking. Child support requests are delivered via text or voicemail. I am 17, having made it through high school. I even graduate from the alternative program I enrolled in early. My sister goes on to community college and then moves to San Francisco with her boyfriend. She is punished by having tuition support from my dad withheld for moving in with her boyfriend, now husband, before marriage and winds up with a mountain of student debt. Hector does middle school. We've been raising a puppy named GT, a tribute to my sister's sapphire Mustang Gran Turismo. My mommy and papi only see each other at graduations. Our fragments have started to form islands. My mother's belly is round again for the fourth time. It is 2008. She is 40 years old. It has been 13 years since the last time. She tells people this baby is a miracle. My mommy has finally found lasting love in a dog park by our house. She says she's learned to get over her new love's thick Peruvian accent. I think his telenovela looks help. Slicked black hair, sharp jaw, stick-straight posture, and chiseled arms. She asks the doctors to untie her tube so she can gift her childless partner one of his own. People, including her children, for many years to come, don't need to know this baby was created with the miracle of science. An expensive and oh-so-worthy Petri dish. I think the procedure she'd get may be lined up with the time she said she was going in for gallbladder surgery. I tell this lie to a doctor who asks about my family's medical history. Later, when I learn the truth of her IVF, I am offended by her withholding. I don't understand her reasons or most reasons for lying. I wouldn't judge her choices, but I have been lying by proxy. But these secrets are my mommy's own. Secrets are her protection. I'm still learning to become a better detective. I can't keep track of all the lies of my family, sometimes even my own. I learn more about my dad through whispers and hiding than from my dad himself. Our foundational truths are always cracking. When yet another truth is revealed, my brain has to arrange and rearrange the stories anew. I think my memories look like freeze frames superimposed on translucent cards, sometimes a simple shuffling of the files of chronology is in order. Other times, I think my brain decides to patch newly burned holes, or maybe my brain decides sometimes the easiest path forward is to shatter ones altogether. I reread my diary entries and see my obsession with truth is one of few constants. I wonder how long my ability to detect lies has been lacking. I wonder if I will ever relearn how to listen to my gut. Mi flaquita, y mi Erika, look how much you've grown. 
Papi says to me and my sister one day sitting outside of our townhouse. He has turned off the engine of his pewter Porsche, having returned from a family party. We are perched atop the hill where my mommy raised her three kids in the home where Papi left us. Mommy, I am so proud of you and your sister, he says. You are both becoming such powerful women's. I suspend a laugh. I am always uneasy with sincerity and direct eye contact, but I feel like a fucking monster for wanting to laugh at my immigrant-ish father for his imperfect English. I think this might be the nicest, realest thing he has ever said to me. I thank him and let my eyes slowly well. Hearing nice things from adults always makes me uncomfortable, makes the tears want to drop and my throat want to close. Don't you think it's not fair that this baby would get part of the house I bought to leave to you and your sister and brother? I look Bobby in his eyes. I look at our house. I look at the glossy faux wood interior of this Porsche. His eyes are black and cold, and I'm struck by the way they permeate despair after oozing what felt like the warmth of a Michoacan sun. The man who taught me how to avoid eye contact and whose eyes I feared when I gave him the wrong answer or cried because I could not find the words I wanted to use, he has suddenly become a boy. I feel the routine knots in my throat build, fighting from being swallowed, the tiny chills sprinting across my body, the tears priming to push their way out, already depleted lungs starved of air keeping me from breathing. No, I say, keeping the waves of my warble at bay. That baby is my brother, and that will be his home too. I can't keep track of all the lies, but I know I am on the other side of one now. I think about my mommy and how this must be a version of how she felt all those times my papi asked her to believe him. I am 17. My father's eyes grow wider. They dare me to stay quiet. I do. My father's voice growls, this tone I am more familiar with. He shouts and tries to convince me and my sister of the greed of this fetus. He thinks his loudness and listing all the nice things he has done for me and my sister and brother will convince us. But for the first time, I know I am the one with the power. When I recount this moment to my sister and mommy as an adult, my memories become warped yet again. My recollection tells me I was all alone, but my sister tells me she was there. My memory of the dialogue of women's corroborates her presence. I'm not sure why my brain was trying to write her out. My sister thinks we were in a different car. How would we three have been sitting in a two-seater? This is a good point. My brain is still trying to figure out how to rewrite a whole new being into this story. I tell her I swear I remember it was that car, except a growing part of me begins to cast doubt. I think every memory I have and ever have will be shrouded in the same doubt. I tell her I remember that flashy car so vividly, but I don't admit that I hated the flash and maybe that's why it's written itself in. I hated how every time he came to California in a new car, in his name brand attire, every time I witnessed how he and his side of the family wore their wealth, it felt like another reminder of our abandonment. 
of all the things I wanted but didn't get to have. When I visited Papi, Cami, and my sisters in Chicago, I saw the expanse of their home and land, the John Deere mower Papi had to sit on with a beer because pushing a mower by hand will be far too much for a single human. Another display of the ways his new family were the ones who got it all, the money, the name brands, the father. I tried to drown out the jealousy I felt of my father's love and their things. I tried to live up to his beckoning of undying gratitude and respect. Years later, when I write this book, my mommy will tell me how she outsmarted my dad with our house. How this young, rocky couple used my mommy's name and two cousins to qualify for the mortgage on our house because his income was best left untraceable. How the pair of cousins each came to my mommy in the first decade of ownership, requesting to be removed from the title so they could buy houses of their own. And how the last cousin did so six months before the phone call came, informing my mom my papi would be leaving. How my mommy earned enough by 30 to refinance on her own in secret, her job security a version of insurance. How in 2008, my puppy tried for the first time in their relationship to lawyer up because my mommy was pregnant with the baby of another man. How the paper trail evidence that my puppy ever lived in this house did not exist. How my mommy's secret and her daughter's convictions of what is ours became the story of our own Brookline's protection. Thank you, Emily, for sharing that stunning essay and your honest thoughts on patriarchy and white supremacy. While it's the mission of this project to deconstruct the history and impacts of patriarchy specifically, It's absolutely essential that we do so with our eyes wide open, acknowledging patriarchy's deep and intimate ties with white supremacy and other systems of oppression. So thank you for this beautiful writing and for that necessary reminder. In the second half of this episode, we're going to be joined by a contributor who prefers to remain anonymous, but we're so thankful that they've decided to share with us their own story about memories, about how patriarchy can make men into monsters and about what happens when the Holy Spirit lets us down. We're thankful as well to our performer, Kate Keating, who will be bringing this story to life. Hello, my name is Kate Keating, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I will be reading an anonymous uh, submission. I specifically chose this piece because it resonates a lot of some similar experiences that I had growing up, Uh, maybe not to the same effect, and there were definitely differences, but I feel that this particular submission resonates uh, with something that is also close to me. So thank you. Every once in a while, my sister Sarah and I will text each other a memory to check whether we are making it up. Memories are unreliable sources of fact we have found, but if the same incident is recorded in two different brains, it's more likely to be true. The first time this happened, she texts, I have a memory of dad shoving Brittany against a wall. Did that happen? My heart fell into my gut. Yes, I text back. I was there too. Okay, she wrote. 
it just came into my mind and I thought maybe I had dreamed it. A few months later, I text her. I have a memory of mom being terrified when dad was in a rage and she took us into Michael's room and locked the door and kept us huddled under her arms. I remember crying and staring at the watercolored picture of teddy bears on the wall. I remember the shape of the doorknob with that flimsy little push button lock. Did that happen? The reply came back. I remember that too. There are happy memories also, an abundant supply. Dad carrying us on his back, telling us stories at night, reciting poetry at the dinner table. Dad praising mom's cooking and telling us how lucky he was to have married that beautiful cheerleader he fell in love with at age 16. Dad acting silly to make us laugh. Dad reading Old Yeller and clearing his throat to choke back his emotions at the end while we wept on the carpet around him. Dad carrying us to bed when we fell asleep in the car. We would pretend to stay asleep so we could feel his strong arms hefting us through the house and up the stairs, then tenderly tucking us in. I guess that's why it's so confusing. Why we doubted the other memories. There was nowhere as safe as our strong, wise, all-powerful dad encompassing us in a hug. So when he turned on us, when he shoved us away with contempt and disgust, when he roared and swore and threatened to destroy our lives, there was nowhere as terrifying. Did dad once tell you he would cut you off and you would have nothing and would go live under a bridge? I asked my sister. Yes. What had you done to make him say that? I told him he was being too hard on Ashley. Did dad used to tell you if you didn't get your grades up, he would turn the screws of your life so tight you wouldn't be able to breathe? Yes. How old were you when he used to say that to you? I don't know, but I remember I was wearing my striped skirt and I wore that in middle school, so maybe 12. Is it true that dad told Ashley that her life was a cesspool and everyone could smell it but her? Yes, she told me that that had happened right before they kicked her out and she came to live with me. Did dad come down to the basement bedroom to scream at me at night after mom had gone to bed? I think I remember laying there crying a lot of times, but it's a fuzzy memory. Did that happen? Yes. I heard it through the walls and I laid there so scared that he would do it to me and feeling grateful but guilty that he didn't. Did he tell you you were a flesh merchant if you were wearing a sleeveless shirt? Yes. Did he tell mom she should wear more makeup and look like women in magazines? Yes. Did you hear him yell at mom? Yes. When she didn't want to move to Dallas for his job when we were little, did he tell her she would have nothing without him? Yes. Did he cut mom off and refuse to tell her he loved her for a year when he found out she had dated someone else in college? Yes. I didn't have words for it at the time, but this is what patriarchy looked like to me as I was growing up. A lot of my memories are hazy, but I do remember clearly my dad yelling at my mom. What do you think you promised me when you married me? And her just crying, not knowing what to say. He was referring, of course, to the vow of obedience. 
when her father walked her down the aisle and gave her to my dad and the minister married them, she promised to love and cherish and obey my father. As a Christian family, we heard a lot about male headship and how the man was ahead of the woman, as Christ was ahead of the church. We heard a lot about how a wife was to be industrious at home like the women in the Bible, never letting her candle go out as she performed her endless domestic duties, raising the children and being a support and helpmeet to her husband. And this is why, as I look back now, I see that our home was not just terrorized by an emotionally abusive man, a one-off individual example of a person with an anger problem, what I see now is that this dysfunction in my home was caused by systematic patriarchy. Sure, my dad had an anger problem, but that anger flared every time his wife or his kids didn't do exactly what he wanted. And he had the expectation that his wife would dress for him and do her makeup for him and spend money the way he wanted to and move to Dallas when he wanted without complaint. And his kids would get the grades he wanted to not bring dishonor to him. Because the patriarchy had taught him that the world revolved around him as a man. Adam was created first. Eve was made from his rib as a helpmeet. His wife pledged to obey him. He made the money. He had financial control. He possessed God-ordained headship of the family. Scripture and our pastor and God himself proclaimed that the man was the leader and the woman's greatest joy was to follow. When we departed even slightly from his expectations, from his center of power, he had no tools to deal with it and he erupted in fury. One of the most tragic effects of patriarchy is that for the majority of my life, I identified more with my dad than my mom. I saw my dad as powerful, my mom as weak. My dad is intelligent, and my mom is feeble-minded. My dad is accomplished, and my mom is infantile. I watched her cower and cave to him, and I hated her for that. I used to have dreams that I was beating up my own mother, dreams that I was beating up her mother, my grandmother, who used to cry all the time after her husband left her for his secretary, dreams that I was beating up my great-grandmother, this one on my dad's side of the family, sober, sad-eyed great-grandmother Abigail, whose husband, my great-grandfather, was a pillar of our congregation and famous in the community for his leadership and charity, and who once caused such a scene, screaming at great-grandmother at Thanksgiving, that everyone quietly put on our coats and left the house before the turkey was even carved. I later learned that his abuse was more than verbal. That somber face was frequently bruised by his fists. I would always wake up from those dreams feeling so guilty. Who dreams of beating up their grandma? And my walking real life relationship with my mother was also largely defined by guilt. My mother with her bony body shriveled by anorexia and chronic pain. I loathed her for setting the example of what a godly woman looked like, submissive, meek, subjugated. She never stood up for me or my siblings when our dad screamed at us. She locked us in a room to protect us, but she never said no. And every time she let him scream at her, she showed me how women should expect to be treated by men. 
This is what you are worth, she said with her silence. My dad is a pastor now, and my mom says his temper is a lot better. He only barged into her office out of the blue to wither her with criticism and insults once during the past year and a half. She says it's the workings of the Holy Spirit, helping soften his heart. And hey, if the Holy Spirit is deciding to help my dad with anger management now, I guess better late than never. But I sure would have appreciated that help when I was a little kid, watching him throw a dictionary at my brother. I sure would have appreciated that Holy Spirit when I was in fourth grade, listening to him emotionally brutalize my mother in their bedroom through our shared wall. I would have liked the Holy Spirit to stray his hand from shoving my small, crying sister. And while we're at it, some people say that the Holy Spirit was originally feminine in the ancient text. If that's the case, then I'd like to know where she was when my mom was getting molested as a little girl by an older boy, and my mom had already so thoroughly absorbed the message that males were in charge that she took the money he gave her and never told a soul until she was grown. If the Holy Spirit is some sort of divine feminine, why didn't she fill my mother's heart with the courage to say, get behind me, Satan, to that older boy? Why didn't the Holy Spirit roar back at my father all those times and say, you will not speak to me that way and you definitely will not speak to me that way in front of our children. You will not speak to Lisa that way. If the Holy Feminine Spirit had done that for my mom and if my mom had done that for me, then I might not have allowed the older, bigger boy to hold me down, and I might not have caved to the male authority and absorbed my own guilt and shame at having been ruined by a man, within a system that claimed that a ruined girl had no worth to other men. But no one helped my mom, and no one helped me, and we never, ever, ever talk about it. Which leaves me sometimes wondering if it was all a dream. God is silent. The Holy Spirit is silent. My mother is silent and submissive. My father continues as the omnipotent center of the universe, oblivious to his destructive power. But at least I have my sister as a witness. At least she can tell me. Yes, I was there too. It happened. so thankful to our anonymous contributor for entrusting us with this heartbreaking story and we're thankful again to Kate Keating for her performance as well. By better understanding the ways that patriarchy can affect men and by continuing to speak out about abuse, I do believe that we can break these painful patterns someday. We're also grateful to Emily Prado for her sharing her insights and her fabulous essay with us. Once more, for anyone interested in learning more of Emily's story, you can find today's selection and many more essays in her book, Funeral for Flaca. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibest for our social media. And thank you, as always, listeners, for tuning in as we continue this work of untangling and understanding the systems that we've inherited. Please keep listening. Please keep sharing. And if you can, please leave a review to help others find this podcast as well. Then join us next week when we'll be joined by filmmaker Kathy Barbini, as well as another anonymous contributor who will be sharing personal stories of faith, fairy tales, accountability, 
and exploring patriarchy within church communities. All of this next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy.